There's something about uh, the beginning of a new year that allows many people to kind of take stock, to get a perspective on things. And this is kind of an exciting new year. I mean, if there's anything you want to do before the 21st century, this is the last year to do it, (laughs) right? (laughs) So one of the ways we take stock is, you know, how's it going on the path? I mean, where am I and what's happening and what really matters? And there's a thing that happens when we uh, kind of take a look at our journey, our spiritual journey, when we try to uh, imagine or understand it. And it's that we sense a path that's going somewhere. You know, like I'm on my way to Southern California kind of thing, like we're going to a destination that's different, maybe better. And yet when we actually practice, I mean, in a moment of real mindfulness, are we going somewhere? You know, what's, what's really happening? What becomes clearer and clearer is that we're not on our way somewhere. Rather, there's really a coming home, a relaxing back in a natural way. I love the way T.S. Eliot puts it. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So much of our deepening in wisdom is just that. It's, it's a deeper and deeper understanding of what's already true for us, what we already intuit. The Buddha, after enlightenment, was said to, was said to say that I truly attained nothing from enlightenment. Non-attaining. This is a hard one, especially for Westerners. You know, we, we have this idea that we're practicing so we can get more relaxed and more peaceful and have better personalities and have more of this and that in our lives. And, and yet to really deeply get that sense that it's not about attaining or accomplishing. It's actually a coming home in the deepest way to who we already are. But it's difficult. We're geared to uh, look for something else. It's to want the next moment to contain what this moment does not. We lean forward. That's our way. And as long as we're seeking for things to be more and different, as long as that's our habit, there's not a sense of completion. There's very few moments that we, ah, this moment, enough, full, complete. Not too many of those moments. Now, throughout history, humans have intuited this truth, intuited that we're not on our way somewhere, but rather what we seek is really the one who is seeking. What we seek is sacred presence. And this has been the path of holy beings, of yogis and wise men and women and shaman and so on through the centuries to discover those pathways that really heal. Heal not so that we become different, but heal us into wholeness, into that sacred presence. And this 
journey into sacred presence is really a journey from sleepwalking where we're not fully here into bringing a wholeheartedness, a fullness of mind, mindfulness, right here and now. So with that, I'd like to describe tonight uh, a little in in some classical terms this journey into sacred presence because it has some distinct phases of unfolding that aren't going anywhere but have some characteristics that are useful to reflect on. And as I speak, to just reflect on your sense of your own journey and see what seems true to you. The spiritual journey begins with a sense of being called. And we wouldn't arrive here or anywhere pursue any spiritual practice, nothing would appear if there wasn't underneath some deep sense of calling. It's a yearning, a longing to live more fully and in some way to come home. The word for home and the word for divine and God in most ancient languages are identical. Did you know that? It's interesting. So there's this longing to come home, longing to return or relax or open to what's real. John O'Donohue says, don't demean longing, the longing of our hearts, by straining outside ourselves to a cold, distant, abstract God. So what we notice in our day-to-day lives is our longing gets contracted and we latch on to things outside ourselves and to achievements, and to possessing other people, and to being recognized. That's a constriction of this more uh, deep, soulful longing to come home, to be fully who we are. And it's this longing that turns us to spiritual life. It's this longing that inspires us in some way to let go of the preoccupations, the the holding-ons in external ways, of letting go of some of our strategies that we have to avoid pain, to seek pleasure. You know, in most Asian cultures, the word renunciation doesn't have as bad a rap as it does in the West. You know, in the West we think of renunciation as this um, having to give up the juicy stuff. Isn't it so? (laughs) And it's just not that way. Suzuki Roshi puts it beautifully. Renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. So there's this calling to come home and this willingness to accept how things are, that they come and go, and not to spend so much of our energy trying to control our lives. That's what we renounce. We renounce this way of trying to grab on or resist, which means we're left more open when we let go in that way. Now the call takes different flavors for different ones of us, and you might reflect for yourself, you know, what is it, what is that longing that really in some way turns you towards the spirit? 
what is it that you really yearn for? For some, it's to love more fully. There's this deep intuition that who we are is love and that to be authentically whole, our path is to love more fully. Others frame it more in terms of knowing truth, that there's this sense of a deep wisdom, a knowing, and how to get through all the busyness of mind to a deeper level of perception, to open the doors of perception, to really experience the cosmos and what it's all about. These are different flavors of being called, this wanting to know or wanting to love, wanting to be more free, sensing how constrained we are day after day, how we move around in these thought worlds that keep us small. So there's this calling to spiritual life, there's this longing, and it frequently takes the shape of what's called a sacred question. How to be free? How to love more fully? How to really wake up, be wise, to know what's true? There's a story, Zen master Kusan uh, visited the Insight Meditation Society some years ago, and he was there during a three-month retreat, and for three months the students had been practicing Vipassana, you know, noting what's going on and coming back to the breath and so on. And so he was to give a talk right at the end of this three-month retreat. And he got up there and he said, this Vipassana, this is, this is not the right way. The only right way is this. What is this? Just that question. What is this? You know, and this, it, here are people, they've been working three months doing this practice. He's saying, no good, no good, <laughs> you know. But there is a truth that we have out of that longing to love or to be free, this kind of inquiry. What will wake us up? What will free us? And it's a beautiful question. These questions are ones that deepen us in the most profound way. They're not the kind of intellectual buzzing that's trying to get us more secure in the world. There's a story of a student uh, under the, the guide of a Zen monk, and he asked the monk, well, what is it that happens to us after we die? questioning, questioning, and the Zen monk said, I don't know. And so the student said, but I thought you were a Zen monk. And the monk responded, I am, but not a dead one. (laughs) (laughs) So there's layers of our questioning, isn't it so? And yet there's a very deep one that's with us when we look carefully a lot. It's a sacred question that comes out of longing. So phase one, this calling, this turning towards spiritual life. Phase two, and again, it's not linear, but what kind of emerges? This kind of question, investigation, what awakens? Out of that, we get drawn to some form of discipline becoming a disciple too, a concerted quality of attention, where we're training our awareness. There's a recognition that for many, many moments of our lives and probably many lifetimes, we've been 
conditioned to forget, to forget who we are, to forget what's important, to forget to be here. So the purpose of practice or discipline is really one of remembering. We do meditation practice not to gain something, but to stop running away. And we all run away. If we look closely at our life, through the day we have many, many ways of doing it, but we leave the moment again and again and again. So practice or awareness training includes concentration. It's a skillful means. It quiets the mind so we begin to see that we're running away. It gives us a way to come back, a way to have access, to be here. We train in mindfulness, which is really the training to notice what's true. It's that awareness that, without any judgment, simply recognizes what's happening. It's open presence. We cultivate compassion. That's a softness of our heart that cares. Each of these facets of awareness that we cultivate is naturally who we are and we can develop it. We can uh, cultivate the garden with wise attention. In each, it's not attaining. It's kind of letting go into the moment. This is a story I heard when I first, one of my first retreats. It's uh, about an insurance company's form sent to a man, and he's responding. In response to your request for additional information, in block three of the accident report form, I put in poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter I should explain more fully. I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had 500 pounds of brick left. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel attached to the sides of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the brick onto it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it lightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 11 of the accident report form that I weigh 135 pounds. <laughs> due, due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, <laughs> I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. <laughs> this explains the fractured skull. <laughs> Slowing slightly, I continued my ascent stopping when the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. (laughs) I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. (laughs) As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I again met the barrel coming up. (laughs) This accounts for the fractured ankle. (laughs) In the vicinity of the third floor, I again met the barrel coming up. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the bricks. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, only my toes were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks, the pain and unable to stand, stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. <laughs> this whole story has been entitled, Unknowing When to Let Go. <laughs> Now in daily life, it might not always seem so dramatic, but as you know, even little stuff throws us off. So there's this, um, in a way, this sense of practice being the practice of discovering wakefulness at the moments that we forget, that we're conditioned to tighten up, to hold on tight, to push away. And there's a basic repetition that's part of the training. We realize we've gone away, ah, come back, come back, bringing the mind back over and over. And it's a process that connects body, mind, and spirit again and again in this moment till we start to become more familiar with a sense of being that's here and whole than the habituated sense of self that's scattered out there, chasing after experience, fighting experience. Now, there's many ways that we train. One of them is coming back to the breath. Sometimes we train listening to sounds. In Tibetan awareness training, one of the ways of gathering together one's awareness is in forming these 100,000 elaborate prostrations, which some Westerners call the 100,000 frustrations. But they might seem useless unless you know really what it's like to do a movement that fully gathers your attention. And I'll read you, this is um, a description. One Lama, after his first 10,000 prostrations, laughed and said, the prostrations he did were not any good, so he threw them away. (laughs) Then he began to do them more simply, more entirely. The days and months continued and the trees became vibrant the eyes of the people he met grew vivid with their story. He became more here, awake. In Vipassana practice, the breath is our most common pathway home to concentrate, to quiet the mind, and also to develop a very deep listening attention. We don't listen much. It's because we're afraid and we're busy computing and planning and worrying. So it's rare, very rare, that we actually stop and pause enough to listen to our own body and our heart and really listen to another being. It's for that reason there's not that many moments of true intimacy because we're off a lot. So this training, this practice, this discipline is coming back, listening to the breath, listening to what's true in any moment. This is a story that um, I read in a book, Arnie Mandel, who teaches this one way of coming present, described it in his work with patients in comas. In this particular case, he went into a hospital and there was an old black man named John who had been lying in a coma for six months and he sat next to his bedside, held his hand, and as he was lying there, 
with raspy breathing, and John was lying there with raspy breathing, um, Arnie describes this. I started to breathe along with him and squeeze his hand with each breath, making that noise with each breath. And after about 10 minutes of just breathing his breath, squeezing his hand, and making the same sound, all of a sudden he opened his eyes and sat up after six months in a coma. He opened his eyes and sat up and he said, you see that? I said, sure, what was that? He said, a big white ship's coming for John. Are you gonna take it, I asked. Not me, he said, I'm not getting on that ship. Why not, I asked. That ship's going on vacation. It's a cruise ship. I've got to get up in the morning and go to work. Now, John had worked hard all his life and was now in his 80s. His cancer had reduced him to a bag of bones. He was stuck at the end of life because he couldn't allow himself to go on vacation. So I said to him, you know, going to work sounds okay, but maybe you should check, it, check this ship out, you know, take a look in there and see who's driving the ship. So he closed his eyes, his eyes opened, startled, and he said, well, there's angels down there driving that ship. Do you want to find out where it's going, I asked. So he went inside again, looked, came back out and said, that ship's going to Bermuda. Well, I knew he looked like a kind of practical guy, so I said, well, what does it cost? <laughs> a little later he said, it doesn't cost anything. It costs nothing. I said, think about it. Did you ever take a vacation? No, he said, never had a vacation. I've been working, working, working. Well, you might try it. Well, well, he started to think about it. Chances are, if I don't like it, I could probably come back. I said, yeah, maybe you could. Then I said, you do what you want. I'll trust your judgment. I'm busy. I have to see someone else now. And so I left him. He closed his eyes, and that was it. When we came back 30 minutes later, he had died. He had gone to Bermuda. And this is a true story, that the breath is really a powerful instrument or vehicle to listen to it. You don't have to do anything special, just to feel it without controlling anything, just to feel the realness of the breath teaches us how to feel the realness of any wave or appearance of life that arises. It's a training in intimacy. So our practice is to recognize we've been gone, that we've left, that we've blown off into thought forms, and again and again, with great patience, because it's the nature of mind to think. Notice it, and then come back. This means to really be committed to recognizing when we're off in thoughts, because we live so many mind moments, one step removed. Fantasy thoughts, worry thoughts, planning thoughts, ways to avoid pain, ways to get more pleasure. Mark Twain writes, most of the terrible things in my life never actually happened. Right? <laughs> so we train, we notice thinking, 
We notice the whole drama that we've created and ah, thinking, thinking, coming back again and discover aliveness in this more immediate way. This is a story about an African tribe and in this tribe uh, the birth date of a child is counted not from the day they're born by our standards and not when they're conceived but it's rather by the day the child was a thought in the mother's mind. And that's the day the child was truly conceived because everything we do is done out of mind or awareness. So that when the woman decides that she's going to have a child and that that fills her, that sense of it, she goes off under a tree and just meditates and hears the song of the child that wants to come. And after she's heard that song, she comes back to the man who will be the child's father and teaches it to him. And when they make love to physically conceive the child, some of the time they're singing the song to the child, inviting it in with its song. And then when the mother uh, has time, she teaches the song to the midwives, the old women of the village, so that when the child arrives, all the women and elders and everyone in the village can also sing that song to, to welcome the child. As the child grows up um, and the other, other villagers are taught the song and when it falls down or hurts his or her knee, someone can pick him or her up and sing that song. Or when there's the rites of puberty, as a way of honoring that person, they'll sing the song. So that's the way it goes through life, through marriage. The songs are sung together. And finally, even when this child is ready to die, all of the villagers know his or her her song. So when they're lying there ready to die, they can sing that song for the last time to the person. So I get really moved by that story because there's this quality of such connectedness, whether we sense the song or the energy or the imagery of a being, um, such a deep listening, attending to, that's, that's expressed in this culture and that is often missing in ours. So we train in this deep listening. Um, the closest thing to it has been described sometimes as uh, music or dance. Alan Watts writes that when you play a piece of music, the object isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. If you did that, then the fastest musicians would always be the best ones. But isn't it true with dance also? I mean, if the idea of dance was to scurry your partner to the end of the room, and that would be a strange kind of dance. It's, it's not about getting somewhere. The joy, the living it, is in the moment, in the unfolding. So we train in presence. This is the third of the parts. We've talked about the calling and the the question, what's really true and how to wake up. And then the practice of coming back again and again into a sense of sacred presence. The next of the classical uh, description of the path is the arising of trouble. (laughs) There has to be trouble, right? It's not just a smooth shot any of us, called Mara, you know, in the the Pali word Mara. This is kind of considered the uh, forces of difficulty. Mara is anger and greed and lusting and fear and 
pride and attachment, all the temptations, and they're all considered a part of the process. And the practice is not just on the beautiful days to go sit in the sun and have a blissful meditation, but to experience these natural energies of being embodied and alive and discover wakefulness, kindness, presence in the midst of that. There's a very deep understanding in the sacred journey that what arises is absolutely perfect for our continued awakening. So that whatever's going on in our lives right now, the pains emotionally, physically, the difficulties, the conflicts, if we can put down our story about something being wrong, anything that's going on right now can be the grounds of waking up if we're willing to pay attention, if we're willing to open our hearts. This is Pema Chodron. It's helpful to realize that this very body that we have that's sitting here right now with its aches and its pleasures is exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake, fully alive. Now it's not easy because it's our quite deep conditioning to contract against difficulty and to think something's wrong and to think almost that our spiritual path can resume in its flowering as soon as the difficulty subsides. We're really rigged that way. That things will be fine, we can move on when our depression goes away or when our physical pain is subsided, when our partner treats us differently or we're thinner, financially secure, and on and on and on. If only mind, it's a big one. After that, then we can resume. So it is part of this journey to develop this capacity of saying this too, of in a quicker and quicker way realizing whatever this is right now, this difficulty, this expression of Mara, that this too is perfect for cultivating compassion and wakefulness. This is Relka. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrounding lose myself in your loosened hair? how we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really seasons of us, our winter, enduring foliage, ponds, meadows, our inborn landscape where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home. The Tibetans describe the mud banks of passions. It's out of these mud banks of passions that the lotus of awakening occurs. So Mara, these forces of difficulty, can't serve awakening if they're met with resistance or judgment or aversion because that just creates more inner war. And we can see it in society in unwise, unenlightened societies, how our penal systems work. Does it ever heal to punish someone? 
I mean, it might make sense to create boundaries so people don't hurt each other, but do we ever heal anyone with anger, with punishment? There's a most famous Tibetan tanka, or drawing, of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment. And Mara, these forces of difficulty, were coming at him, uh, arrows and swords and blades and spears. And what the Buddha does in this painting is he holds up his hand and it's connected to his heart with the golden cord of compassion. And with his hand he touches each of the swords and arrows with kindness, with compassion. And, and as he does that, as he touches each one, they turn into flowers and, and fall petals at his feet. And there's these mounds of flowers around him in the picture. And it's the truth of awakening that we have the power of awareness and heart to meet whatever arises. We forget that, but it's there in us. So this phase of trouble arises and it's actually through relating to what arises that we awaken deeply into the fifth stage described as transformation or the shift in who we think we are. This isn't a change of becoming different. This is the transformation or the melting of the ice cube back into the stream of water. This is the becoming fully our awakened essence. Each moment, even the small ones here, that we stop and we directly experience just what's happening right now, mindfully, with some tenderness, it opens us a bit out of that old confined sense of a small self, a a victimized self, a struggling self, it opens us out of that and into that sense of being awareness, awareness that sees, awareness that cares. It's been described um, by some as taking the one seat, this, this shifting or opening of our identity where rather than moving around in all our reactivity, there's an unshakability, there's a courage just to be with what is, without grasping, without pushing away. I'd like to read you Relka again. Center of all centers, core of all cores, almond, self-enclosed and growing sweet, all this universe to the furthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space and there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. On this journey to sacred presence, we learn how to stay here, how not to fight, how not to resist this life, 
and not to grasp so much, but rather how to live in a fullness, wakefully, compassionately, experiencing wholeheartedly what's true. We take the one seat and it takes courage. I think every time we decide to sit down and be with our experience, there's an element of willingness and courage because we're putting down this controlling, this avoiding, these strategies we have to not be here. And rather we're being willing to just open to how it is. It's said that the mystic risks everything and lands in the shelter of the divine embrace. We risk everything in a moment of really letting go into the present moment. And in that sense of presence, we touch what's sacred. So here we have this fifth kind of part of the unfolding, this opening of our sense of who we are. But just to say that the journey isn't into some sort of formless, intangible bliss where we just kind of... That's it, we've done it. There's no there to get. The last of the classic phases in this journey is integration. It's said in the Zen ox herding pictures that when we experience this awakening, mountains are no longer mountains. But as we maintain a sense of wakefulness, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. We belong to the world, so there's an embodied awareness. It's not otherworldly. It's a sacredness that's right here, fully here. The way Merton describes it, life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a nice story. This is true. We're learning to see and it's not some crystal rainbow Buddha out there thing. It's experiencing this mind, this body, this wakefulness, this awareness that really is all of us together. We discover it in the most simple moments. It's not necessarily flashy. It's when we pause and sense the freshness of the snow or the silhouette of the trees or just the cheerfulness of holiday lights. This is... uh, probably my favorite of Ann Landers. (laughs) At 86, Rose and I live by the rules of the elderly. If the toothbrush is wet, you have brushed your teeth. (laughs) If the bedside radio is warm in the morning, you left it on all night. If you are wearing one brown shoe and one black shoe, you have a pair just like it somewhere in the closet. Try not to mind when a friend tells you on your birthday that a case of prune juice has been donated in your name to a retirement home. I stagger when I walk and small boys follow me, making bets on which way I'll go next. This upsets me. Children should not gamble. Like most elderly people, we spend many happy hours in front of the TV set. We rarely turn it on. These phases of the journey into sacred presence are not um, some linear sequence. In fact, in any given day, you can 
experience the whole cycling of ah, yes, that kind of longing and and what's true and then this willingness to pause and really feel and then encountering some intensity and staying there, being with and feeling that quality of opening and then sensing that openness in the small things. We can cycle through it in days and we can cycle through it in seasons and over the broad strokes or sweeps of our life. If it's a useful way to um, explore the spiritual unfolding, then to consider it. But mostly, I think for me, what's helpful is to keep remembering that it's not a journey going somewhere else. It's our path to remember that what we're coming to is a deep arriving, just this moment, to let go of everything, thoughts, ideas, just coming into the fullness of this moment. And we discover a sacredness, we discover that the divine shines through everything. I'll end uh, this talk with a reading from a Sioux leader, a medicine man, Black Elk. Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and around and beneath me was the whole circle of the world. I stood there, I saw more than I could tell and understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that together make one circle, wide as daylight and starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. But you must realize that anywhere is the center of the world and anywhere is holy ground. So if you will, just to sit up for a moment and we'll sit quietly together. With the gentleness, with a kind attention, coming home into this moment.
So thank you for your attention. We'll be um, closing our evening together with a New Year's ceremony, and it's a short ritual, so I hope you can stay for it. Um, And as what are called protection cords are being passed around amongst you, I'll explain it a little bit. So, and if you'd like to stretch your legs as we're setting up for this, please feel free to. So this ceremony is a ceremony uh, that's designed to give us a reminder to come into sacred presence. And these, it's done in um, mostly Theravadan Buddhist countries, this particular one, which is one brand of Buddhism. What you're receiving, the protection cords, are um, metaphorically from the robe of a monk. And uh, they're usually in the traditional monk color of uh, orange, but they're also sometimes in white. And the idea is that we have a protection cord around our wrist, our neck, and we wear it until it either falls off or if we want to take it off and put it somewhere special, that's fine too. But it's to serve as a reminder to come into what is precious to us, a wakeful, present kind of awareness. So just as you hold the cord just to meditate, This is a time at the beginning of this, really this last year of the century, to sense aspiration, sense the calling, what it is that really matters to you in this lifetime. Let yourself connect with the heart in a genuine way. You're at the end of your life looking back. The questions that would really matter. Did I live a life with heart, with love? Did I love well? Did I live my moments fully? Sensing what's important. In the Buddhist tradition, our way back into what is sacred has been described as taking refuge. We take refuge in what's true, in what can awaken us, remind us, connect us. So as a part, as a beginning to this ceremony, with each of the refuges, we will take a, there's three of them, we will tie a knot in this cord so as to infuse this cord with a sense of what our refuge is. And so I'll just meditate first and I'll describe the first refuge and then we'll tie the cord together. 
in a knot. The first of the three refuges, I take refuge in Buddha nature, in the Buddhas, which is the awakened nature that's within us and within all beings. We take refuge in the possibility of awakening and in that radiant, compassionate awareness that is our nature. So as you reflect on this, repeating to your own being, I take refuge in Buddha nature, in awakened nature, please tie the first knot in your cord. The second of the refuges, I take refuge in Dharma, and Dharma is the path. Dharma is the practices, the truths that help us wake up, that help us come home. And we each have our own sense of what that path is for us, so it's a very personal refuge. I take refuge in Dharma, reflecting on what is the way for you what is the path into sacred presence? And as you reflect on that, feel that in your heart, and then please tie the second knot into your cord. The third refuge, I take refuge in Sangha. Sangha is spiritual community, it's relationship. Taking refuge in Sangha is taking refuge in that sense of belonging to the web of life. It's a reverence towards, a love towards life that is our home. So as you reflect on this quality of refuge in Dharma and Sangha and feel it in your heart, please make your last of the three knots. And then, uh, without speaking, if you will, to please turn to someone uh, that can then help you as we put these cords on us, finding a partner, and then just sit quietly facing each other. You can have your eyes closed in pairs as you listen to the mantra, gate gate, para gate, para sam gate, bodhiswaha. This is the mantra of freedom. So finding a partner, please, turning around, without speaking, if you will, just to keep a sense of quiet and presence.
anybody not have somebody? Raise your hands, please. There's one right back there. Anybody else need a partner? Good. Now these cords can be tied either on your wrists or around your necks. Choose which way you'd like it. They're a little short for the neck, so I would suggest the wrist. And just to take turns, and as you um, tie the knot for the person you're with, to meditate with them on this being a reminder, a pathway, again and again, into sacred presence. So at your own pace now, to help each other with your protection cords. first part of the loving-kindness practice be an offering of prayer to your own being, 
offering your blessings, your care, your prayer for awakening. for loving fully, for living fully, in whatever words you'd like to offer it. And then sensing your partner tonight and all those that have gathered, each in a sincere way, sensing their journey and offering your prayer that we each may experience the fullness of who we are in this life. Your prayer to the Sangha, to those that have gathered. And take a moment, see some faces in your mind's eye, and sensing the sincerity of aspiration, of longing, feeling that connectedness when you offer your prayer. And then extending your prayer to all beings, to all life everywhere, that all beings may be free from suffering, that all beings may touch peace, that all beings may awaken, discover their Buddha nature, their truth, their hearts. We close our loving kindness practice with the chanting of Namo. The word Namo, I bow, I honor, I see the divine in you, Namo. The first three chants of Namo to offer to your own being seeing the divine within. In the next three, to the Sangha, to those that have gathered. And then in the last three, this bowing and honoring to all beings. And as you chant, feel free to harmonize or come in at whatever pitch you would like. Feel creative and just chant from your heart, inhaling deeply. Ah. Uh-huh.